Hello, everybody. You're listening to the Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 415 Planes, Trades, and Automobiles. Hello, Big Chillians, and welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Eddie. Eddie, how's it going? Well, I mean, after the 50 minutes, 60 minutes we've just spent trying to figure out your technical issues, it was probably better an hour ago, but yeah, not too bad. How are you? Uh, you don't you don't enjoy just sitting around while someone has to restart their computer and then they get a Windows update that takes 45 minutes? No, I don't love it, <laughs> amazingly enough. I was going to say, I, I wanted to just update the listeners. Um, I said that I was watching Euphoria last last week or something like that, one of our previous podcasts, I've now caught up and finished season two of Euphoria. I don't know what people are loving. <laughs> the From a uh, like cinematic experience, it's really nice. I mean, the, the visuals are great. He does such a great job with the camera work and everything like that. But the story is so bad. He'll start a story, and then all of a sudden, two episodes later, he just forgets that he did this crazy plot, and just it's abandoned. He's abandoned like forty plots in in ten episodes or fifteen episodes. Whatever they have, it's it's almost as bad plot as the OC and like One Tree Hill type of shows. That's the plot level. I mean, that's fine because if you are the OC or One Tree Hill, and you're just a teen drama. And everyone knows what your expectations is. I think that's okay, but I think it's yeah, that's fine. It's different for but, a show that's being. But kinda, when you get this praise, yeah. right, for like the best show on television right now, and then you watch it, and it's like, wait, there was a love triangle, and then that's it. It's gone now. Nothing happened out of it. I don't know how many people legitimately are calling it the best show on television. Who are people you would want to hear you would consider to be people you'd want to know what their favorite show on television is right now you're right i I don't i I mean it does get critically acclaimed and the numbers are pretty astonishing for people watching so the season finale had over i think 17 million people and to put that perspective that's about what game of thrones was at at its peak and that's double what succession was this year yeah you're talking in the u.s though in your very uh american-centric conception of of popularity. I mean, well, it is an American TV show. So. Sure, but but I mean, I think that would be the difference with say Game of Thrones, which was huge in every country on earth versus this, which definitely is big in other places, but I don't think it's established that same level of popularity. Like Game of Thrones definitely is on a larger scale than than this. Yeah. Zendaya is, is pretty amazing, but other than I, that, oh, see see very... you're falling into the trap. What is she amazing? What's amazing about her? I mean, the the episode, oh, I don't really want to do much spoiler alert here, but it's not really, I guess, a spoiler. She relapses. And the episode that's centered on her relapse is a pretty moving episode, I guess that you could say. It's It was the only episode that I genuinely took away, like, wow, that was a really good episode of television for season two. And she acted amazingly in it. I, I mean... I would be surprised if she doesn't win an Emmy for just that episode. Who cares? It's an Emmy. But it, like, I can't even tell you who wins Emmys. But the I, Ted Lasso. She falls into the category of just horrifically overrated and just so popular that no matter what she does at this moment in time, people are going to love it. Like 
just a clip, a glimpse of her. <laughs> but you haven't even seen what she's famous for. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I don't know if this is necessarily what she's most famous for now. I would argue that, that Spider-Man is now what she's most famous for. But that's but that's not what she's like acclaimed for. No, You're but that's different. Like, everyone thinks she's so great. No, but you said most famous for. Uh, yeah, this is her this is her artsy acting job versus being in Spider-Man. But I would say that m- most people would know her more from being in the Spider-Man franchise. But I don't know. She's to me, she's hitting like Beyonce level where people just decide whatever she does. I love her. Doesn't matter. It's the most amazing acting performance I've ever seen because I love her and I love what she stands for, even though she stands for fundamentally nothing, but, and it's not to like knock her. She's just an actress and she, I'm sure she's talented. Like I've never seen her do anything badly. So I'm not going to, I don't want it to come across in that respect and she can dance and she can do whatever, but it's just, and people are labeling her the next Beyonce, right? Which I don't get because the comparison is so strange because one of them made their name as a singer and the other one is making their name as an actress. So like, it's, it's a very strange comparison to me. It would be like watching a golfer and being like, oh, he's the next Lionel Messi. It's like, it's very, very odd to me, but I don't know. I just, I've had enough of her and enough of Tom Holland. I don't want to limit it. I've been, <laughs> if I don't see. It cracks you up though. I love that you've had enough of her, but you haven't seen Euphoria or the Spider-Mans. <laughs> no, I've seen some of the Spider-Man franchise with her in it. I haven't seen the latest one. You saw the second one? I, I don't know which ones they are, but I've seen with one. Jake Jake Gyllenhaal. I, I mean, I don't even know. I, I've seen one of I've seen one of them when they go to Europe. That one where they're on like a that's the, that's a school Jake trip a school one. trip to Europe. Yeah, I've seen that one. Nothing to write home about. It's a Spider-Man movie, so I'm not going to judge. But Tom Holland, yeah, I don't need to see him again in a long time. If I never see him again, that will be fine. Uh, I think you're screwed on that one, Eddie. I think he's slowly becoming one of the more famous television and, uh, and movie people. I'm screwed on there. both of them. I'm absolutely screwed on both <laughs> of them. They, they'll be ever-present probably for the rest of my life. But that's fine. And it doesn't really bother me. Like I'm not losing sleep over the fact that they're successful nor am I actively, I'm making the, I'm making the decision to not see stuff they're in, which is fine. But like, it's impossible, for example, to go on Instagram and not see one of them. Like if yeah. you, any scrolling on Instagram, you have to see one of them, usually both of them. And that's the thing that's like, aside from just shutting myself off to all forms of media, they're actually kind of impossible to avoid at the moment. See, now I, I wonder, so this is a question that actually came up randomly, but it also works for them as well. You say that they're going to be around forever, but they are both actors that are very young looking and they play that young character well. And this pops into my head because someone was talking about Superbad the other day and said kind of like, where did Michael Sarah go? And my opinion is Michael Sarah was great because he had that young kid look and he fit that category. But now as an adult... He kind of looks slightly like a creepy kid adult. So maybe he's not getting the roles as much as as other people. Well, okay. I mean, I don't think you're totally wrong in that analysis. But let's speak with the utmost respect to Michael Sarah, who I actually think is probably more talented than either of the two we've just been speaking about. Comparing Michael Sarah to Tom Holland, I think, is either extremely insulting to Tom <laughs> Holland or very generous to Michael Sarah. So... You know, but you know what I mean. Like they both, the, he he fits that 
very like teenage role very well. Sure, but he may well age into a good-looking middle-aged guy, you know. So you're talking about Tom Holland, yeah, because <laughs> it's not Michael Sarah. <laughs> and also, the difference too is Michael Sarah was very much in that like alternative comedy thing. It was a niche, and there was a moment where that was very very popular in terms of there were huge movies being made in that movement. And then now, not so much. I mean, basically, you could kind of, not that he was in any way beholden to Judd Apatow, but you could almost track the Michael Sarah's career tra- trajectory with that of Judd Apatow's. I mean, it's a fair point about Michael Sarah. He does look weird now. And it, I guess getting on to sports. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about another controversial figure from the sporting world this time who refuses to go away, much to your annoyance. And to be honest with you, I'm not too bothered by it, but that's Colin Kaepernick, who today it's come out that he is, he claims, or his camp claims that he is in as good of a shape as he's ever been. So he's now 34 years old. He's what, five years or seven years removed from playing in the NFL? Can't even remember the number now. Something like that. Yeah. But I wanted to say at one point it was like four, but then I really realized it's been so long. I think it's been seven. I think it's, well, so what would seven be? That would be 2000 and. 15 that sounds right certainly with him being a, and, a and starter it's not to my annoyance that he won't go away <laughs> that's an incorrect statement what i was annoyed about is that you keep seeing these press releases about how he's in the greatest shape of his life and any qb that's looking to or any team that's looking for a qb to make a run should get after him and this and that this is starting to get annoying because i, I mean i have two reasons for it. one if he was really that passionate about just playing football, like he, he puts this card out, you know, I just want to be a football player. I just want to play football. There are other avenues to play football besides the NFL. Okay. Before you, so that's kind no, of no, the no. one thing. So before you go on to, okay. Okay. I, okay. We, we can, you, I don't think you can do multiples in this one. Cause I totally disagree with you on that. One okay. Because I don't know what the other avenues are. You, we, we spoke before. I know you're going to say the CFL or arena football or, the XFL when in, or the US XFL, whatever, these variations that keep popping up. But those are not, A, it's not even real football. So you're not playing the same game. So you're already asking someone who's going into the CFL to completely, cha- in a sense, almost change the sport they're playing. Like it's a little bit like switching between, ah, say, that r- is, rugby. That is a bold stretch. It's like switching between rugby union and rugby league. Like are the fundamental aspects. So what are the main differences in CFL? There's there's more players on the field, right? There's there's no. there's one less down. There are only three downs, right? And then they have that weird thing where they can punt the ball into the end zone. So you don't even know the differences. You're looking at me and you're like, wait, what? So you you were very assured of yourself there. No, I was looking I was looking about the punting role. Okay, I don't remember that one. Yeah, it's but yes, there's three downs and it's a longer field. Okay. And they punt the ball. They have this weird thing where they can punt the ball into the end zone and the other team's punting the ball out of the end zone. And I, I genuinely have no idea what's going on when it comes on the TV. And I, I, I said this to you. I think telling him, if you really love playing football, go play football somewhere else or go improve yourself somewhere else, as I said to you before recording, I think it's disingenuous because I don't think anyone, if he went to the CFL or if he went into arena football and was unstoppable, if they were, if they said, "Oh my God, Colin Kaepernick is the best player in the CFL by 
10 times, like a factor of 10. It is not even close. He is throwing for a thousand yards a game, rushing for another thousand. His team is scoring 200 points a game. I think everyone would just say, but it's the CFL. He wouldn't be proving anything. So the only argument you can come up with, which maybe I'll give you, is just oh, if you want to really want to play sports. But he can probably he can just go and play sport in his local community if all he wants to do is get out on the field and play a little bit. But you're not telling me that if if you suddenly read that Colin Kaepernick is tearing up the CFL, you would then you would follow up that by going, why isn't Colin Kaepernick in the NFL right now? Yeah. Okay. Maybe you're right on that statement, but isn't it more disingenuous that at age, what, 32, seven years removed from the league, 34. he's putting out pressers that's 34, sorry, 34, seven years removed from the league, that he's putting out pressers he can still play in the NFL? I mean, I think that's more disingenuous. Uh, he probably believe, he believes that. I mean, and look, if you if you look at the people. Great. I believe it, too. I think I can make the NFL. <laughs> I believe it. A little bit different. <laughs> Not quite the same. I mean, you don't have quite the same body of work at this point. I hate to break it to you, Frank, but <laughs> but, but the, the the thing is, too, I mean, he's probably looking at some of the players who are about to start in the NFL next season, and he probably thinks to themselves, I'm definitely better than that guy. And now the argument against Colin Kaepernick always is, is that in the final couple seasons with the San Francisco 49ers, he was terrible. Like that is anyone who's trying to say that the Niners only cut him for political reasons. He lost his job. He lost his job because he was bad. Now, I think he's definitely didn't get another shot in the NFL for political reasons. And that's not saying, even if I'm being generous to the NFL and owners groups, I don't think that's necessarily them being like blackballing him. It's more people weighing up. Is it worth it to have this distraction and this level of attention in our locker room? I think that's definitely why he didn't get into the back into the NFL. But he did not lose his job because of that. He lost his job because he wasn't playing well. I think the th- I think the biggest argument against Kaepernick, it's never been clear whether or not he would actually take a backup role. Like I think it feels like he's holding out for a starter's po- starter position. And fundamentally, his route back into the NFL is to come in as a backup. Now, again, I don't know if a team, given the additional baggage that would come with him, would be willing to sign him as a backup because you... You know, why would you want a backup who's getting, who's, you know, press or gathering around the backup's locker room after a performance? But, I mean, I think that's, I don't know how he can prove himself from a football perspective. Do you have another reason why it annoys you? No, so what I was going to say is, in the beginning, I completely agree with what he was doing, where one or two years removed from the NFL, I don't think he has to go out and do anything he he you know, staying in shape, putting up his videos, that's fine. And I understand that. But I think at this point in time, so much time has elapsed that I think it's a fair statement if a franchise basically said to him, look, yeah, that's great. You look great on a field with no people, with one receiver that you work with every day. Show me some actual tape now. And I think it, I think that's come to that point where I don't think he has a chance just putting up videos of him working out in Southern LA on a field on a Friday night. I think if he has a, if he legitimately wants to go in, he has to put in some tape of being in an actual game. Maybe. And, but again, I think the issue here is, is we're in an NFL where Cam Newton's probably going to get signed by someone. And there are, t- Drew Locke is going to be a starter in the NFL. 
And you can't tell me that if you're oh, Colin gosh. Kaepernick and you're you're looking at that, that you're not saying to yourself, are you kidding me? Like you're telling me I can't at least be as, as effective as Drew Locke in the NFL? Someone threw him in. I think we say that, Eddie. Well, <laughs> someone threw him into a trade deal. You know what I mean? Like there's <laughs> no someone just wanted to get rid of him in that trade deal. <laughs> other team must have wanted him. You know what I mean? Like he still was part of the trade deal. You know, I, I think that's the issue for Kaepernick is that you would look at it and think to yourself, yeah, look, there's a few people out there where I know if he was coming out and claiming that he's better than Patrick Mahomes, I'd have an issue with that. But with him just thinking that there might be a landing spot in the NFL where he could be as effective, if not more, than some of the players currently in the in the league. But and I, I just don't think he can prove himself anywhere other than the NFL. In the same way that when um what's his face from the Browns, Texas A and M. Uh Manziel. Johnny Manziel went to the CFL. Like that was proving nothing. He didn't do well there either, so that didn't help. But but you know, like Johnny Manziel's performances in the CFL were not going to realistically help him get a job in the NFL. And I think that's the tough thing. I mean, Tyler, uh, T- T- Taylor Henneke did it. He played for what, five seasons in the NFL and then went to the St. Louis Battlehawks for a year and then came back and was the starter for Washington. Look, there's, a, there's the exception that proves the rule. So, you know, I'm not saying it's impossible. But how... How many exceptions are there to seven years of not playing and coming back? <laughs> yeah, I mean, none. I'm not arguing that I think he's going to get a job. I don't. But I can understand. I think telling him, go play in the CFL, it's not solving his problem. I don't know. And look, there might be other reasons that he kind of occasionally pops his head up and shows himself to be fit and ready to play because... I don't know what the situation is with his ongoing, whether his lawsuits are still ongoing or not. I don't know if those are still going through, you know, a court of appeal or whatever is happening there. So there might also be his lawyer saying, hey, it would be making it a lot easier if every six to 12 months you just put up a couple of videos and told the world that you're NFL ready because that's a more convincing argument for us in court than, hey, that guy stopped playing seven years ago. I'm as good as him. Well, now actually that I brought up, Taylor Heineke, there's one thing we didn't really address is what do you think is the better team nickname that he's played for? The St. Louis Battlehawks or the Washington Commanders? The new team name of the Washington football team. They're both bad. I mean, they're both really bad. They both sound like the team names that would be in a movie. But that's obviously worse when you're an NFL team. Like uh, the Washington Commanders sounds like I'm watching any given Sunday and it's one of their opponents on the path to the Super Bowl. I think that's the, and that's tough whenever you rename. Yeah. Cause, like the Renegades. Yeah. <laughs> like it's going to be tough whenever you rename a team because that's always, it's always going to sound weird because fundamentally sports names and particularly sports teams nicknames are stupid. You know, like, but. This is a particular. This is not a good one. Whoever they hired, whichever agency they hired, to help them, you know, spitball this idea and kind of have some workshops where they came up with it as this is an option. They could have saved themselves probably a ton of money. And I mean, the original name suggestions that were going around on Twitter were way better than this. Yeah, and I mean, you look at hockey, the Seattle Kraken. I think they did it. They put a, together a pretty cool name and you know jersey logos, uh, better than some of the other I don't options. Know. They- 
were put together. I don't know. That's the. I think it's pretty cool. It sounds. Seattle Kraken to me, it's kind of like the Toronto Raptors. Like it sounds, it's like a like twelve year old's wet dream for a sports team name, you know. And I, Eddie, what was the last thing that you actually said you liked in life? I don't know. Probably it was how far back in your life do we have to go <laughs> that you said I like that? Nineteen ninety four, probably. <laughs> but now. But we just we we just alluded to obviously the big trade that really shook things up in the on the western side of the NFL in both the AFC and the NFC West, which was the trade that moved Russell Wilson from the Seattle Seahawks, also speaking of Seattle, to the Denver Broncos. It kind of I mean it's it's hard to think of many trades that have happened. You you're asking me to think of the last player who had set out of the NFL for seven years and came back. It's hard to think of the last time that a team had a superstar Super Bowl winning quarterback and decided to trade them away. And that really does not happen very often. Who's not coming towards the very end of their career? Yeah. So the official trade was um, the Broncos got rid of Drew Locke and they are forever happy, whoever they got back in return. <laughs> no. So uh, Russell Wilson was traded for Drew Locke. Tight end Noah Fant, defensive lineman Shelby Harris, two first round picks with it being the 2022, which is the ninth overall, which is a really nice pick, and the 2023, and then two second round picks, uh, both the 2022 and the 2023, and a fifth round selection, and a fourth. So Wilson and a fourth is what they got in return. So you think it's enough? Probably not, but... At the same time, I don't know how well-suited Seattle was to make a run in these next few years. So maybe this is an opportunity to reload, build the roster back, and in three to four years, make another run for the playoffs. But I I never like giving up a QB that is that well-established and is that great because you never know when you're going to get it again. I mean, look at the Giants the Giants fans are wishing they had Eli Manning back. And when he was their quarterback, they wanted to get rid of him, you know, and that's, and that's, you know, he's not even of that caliber, even close of a Russell Wilson. So it's, it's tough to let someone go. That could be the best QB in your franchise history. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm torn because I, I don't think overall it's enough. I kind of agree with you. I don't think you'll ever necessarily really be able to get enough because fundamentally the only thing that would be enough is, is if you did like a QB swap and they were both, unhappy but very good but the other you know Russell Wilson's not been that good for the last couple of years I know that you can kind of write off last season because he had this finger injury pretty much the entire season and so it's easy to say that his accuracy suffered as a result I think my big issue with Russell Wilson is the thing that made him so dynamic in the early part of his career and like a lot of mobile quarterbacks as they get older they stop running and with Russell Wilson, that was such a huge part of his game. Not not in the Lamar Jackson, he needed to rush for over 100 yards kind of way, but that if he wasn't making plays with his feet, he removed a major element from his game. And it just feels as if over the last two or three seasons, as they tried to avoid him getting, you know, being on the wrong end of big hits, he has stopped doing that. And I feel like that's the big concern for me is I can't imagine that he's going to reintroduce that into his game as he gets older. And I think that's, that's what would worry me. 
And I think that's always whenever I, I think whenever you have a mobile quarterback, I feel like the cutoff for them is a lot earlier than it is for a pocket, you know, a traditional pocket passer. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, and you're right. He wasn't a running a runner in the sense of a Lamar Jackson, but more kind of like a Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, keep a play alive, can scramble when needed to make positive yards kind of thing. And that that was what was great about him. And the older he gets, the less that's going to be possible. And yeah, and I guess even the, the older it gets and the, the older the NFL gets in the sense that these new guys coming in, I don't know if you saw that, the D tackle from Georgia at 340 pounds ran like a 4 440. <laughs> so, you know, he's going to be playing against people who just the athleticism is getting better and better as he's getting older. So it, it is a concern. But I, I think also, I, I kind of want to ask you this. Do you think there's any, um, let's say, goodwill on the Seahawks for kind of seeing that Russell Wilson wasn't happy, wasn't in a good place, was probably not going to do very well as a team in the next few years and said, you know, you've probably got three to four good years left. We'll let you go and do your thing. Do you think there's any part of that or no? Um, I think that might've affected maybe where they traded him that maybe they decided, look, we're not going to trade you to the jets. You know, we're going to try and put you in a position where you could win. Now, I think from his perspective, he's thrown himself into what is now an incredibly tough division. I think that's an interesting element for him. Now, he was already in one, but he has now gone to what I think you could say is arguably the toughest division in the NFL with him arriving. And, but I think that might have affected, I think more, you know, two or three seasons ago, the Seahawks had that moment where they needed to decide who who was the defining or what was the defining feature of their team. And the option was Russell Wilson in their offense or their defense, you know, the Legion of boom and kind of Pete Carroll. And they, they swayed more towards their defense than they did their offense. And I think ultimately there was no coming back from that. I, I think he was so unhappy and obviously he wasn't he didn't seem like he was getting that along that well with Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll's coming towards the end of his career. So if you're Pete Carroll, I mean Pete Carroll's in his seventies. It's not like he's gonna be around fifteen years from now. Well, probably not. I mean, more power to him if he's coaching in the NFL at eighty five years old. But if you're gonna do a rebuild, you gotta do it pretty quickly if Pete Carroll's gonna have a chance of building anything significant. So I can get the logic behind them deciding now was the moment to cut ties. The interesting thing from my perspective, too, to think back on the Russell Wilson moment, the kind of legacy, the Russell Wilson era in with the Seahawks, is there a player that you can think of who at one moment in time was as, as sort of dominant as he was in the NFL, undoubtedly one of the best quarterbacks for several years, won a Super Bowl, was part of an incredibly good team, but that their career-defining play and the play that almost everyone will think of when they think of Russell Wilson's time in Seattle is going to be him failing. It's going to be the interception at the end of the Super Bowl against the Patriots. Like That is going to be the play that people think of as the career-defining play almost, even though his, play, his career itself was excellent. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, 
you know, I, I don't even know if you ask me a defining play for Russell Wilson, I don't even know if one really comes to mind. I guess, I mean, that does come to mind, but I'm trying to think of other big plays. I, I vaguely remember he had like a crazy scramble and then he threw it downfield for like 50 yards for a really big play. I, f- I forget exactly what game that was, but that there's just this play that comes to mind. He scrambled for like eight seconds and then found someone downfield and hit him for a touchdown. But yeah, I don't know. I, I probably not. You know, he's probably the only one who he will be remembered for that. I think the play you might be thinking of is that play against the Packers. The infamous, the one where the one official signaled for the touchdown and the other one signaled for the interception. I think that would be another play that comes to mind for a lot of people in this that might have been his time in in Seattle. But but yeah, no, I'm and obviously a lot of famous wins, like the first time that team beat the beat the uh beat the Patriots and Richard Sherman had the famous quote, the you mad bro or whatever his quote was, you mad dog or I can't even remember. And then obviously they're <laughs> their battles, their battles with the Niners over the that period in time, but and and absolutely demolishing a team uh, in the Super Bowl, but but no, I mean, not not the. If you think you'd set the over under on how many Super Bowl wins they would have had once they kind of established themselves as a very good team, do you think they reached? Where, where do you feel they got to in that Wilson Legion of Boom, Pete Carroll era? I th- think they're probably one to two Super Bowl appearances short. So in his era, what, they went to two and won one, right? I think you would have expected them to make three. And at that point, I, I you know, I think that's the unfair thing when, when people say, well, you only won one Super Bowl. I think once you get to the Super Bowl, it's kind of a crapshoot, but you should at least be going to them. So I think you should have at least been to three. Would have been better than two. Two seems a little low. I mean, you look at Patrick Mahomes, he's already at two. Yeah, and this is always the tough thing, right? Because this is where are we judging people by the Tom Brady Patriots level of success, which is unparalleled. And in reality, most quarterbacks, if you said that you made, just made two Super Bowl appearances and they won one of them, I mean, that's better. Think of all the young quarterbacks that are currently out there right now. You know, one of them is not going to have that kind of record, whether that's Josh Allen or uh, Herbert or some someone who we think is one of the next generational quarterbacks is not going to make it to super, two Super Bowls and is not going to win one. It might even be, you know, uh, the Bengals. This might be the last time we see the Bengals in a Super Bowl, even though everyone feels like this is the start of a, a sort of, I'm not going to say dynasty, but certainly a period where they are going to be factoring on a regular basis. So it's it's a tough one. And also slightly notable that they also got rid of Bobby Wagner. So that's probably their biggest defensive profile player. Um, they've also got rid of, so both Wilson and Wagner, no longer the Seahawks, which they have been synonymous with the Seattle Seahawks for at least the past 10 years. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's them completely hitting reset. There's no Legion of Boom legacy. There's no Russell Wilson. Like everything, aside from Pete Carroll, everything is being completely redone. And it gives a chance, I guess, to someone like DK Metcalf or some of their other players to become the, the face of the franchise. But 
you know, it's, it's a complete, and it seems like a reset that's again, pretty quick. I mean, we're talking about, you know, they were only in the Super Bowl. What was that? You know, 2015, 2014, those were the two years they were in the Super Bowl. So, I mean, when you think about it, it's actually a pretty long time ago, but yeah, as I say, it's about the same as Kaepernick almost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Kaepernick is, yeah. But, you know, I guess they figure if I guess they figure too, you're in a division, right? Where the Rams don't have many years left. They're, they're going to start to have to break apart that team soon. So maybe you're hoping as they break apart, you can kind of fill that void. You have the Cardinals who are kind of on that edge, but at the same time, they're going to have to start paying Murray soon. And a lot of their players are getting older and are going to have to either get paid or leave. So you're hoping they're going to be done two to three years. And then you have the Niners with Trey Lance, which they could go up, but then, you know, you're thinking maybe in three years, if you rebuild now, you could have one of the stronger teams that everyone else is coming down. I I definitely think, that's probably yeah, there's the goal. definitely some logic behind that. And especially when you think to yourselves, hey, are we gonna tread water? And we're in the reigning Super Bowl champions are in our division. They're built to win now. So what realistically are how we have to be very, very good just to make the playoffs. Like we cannot be mediocre and make the playoffs. So yeah, we can keep Russell Wilson around, keep getting okay draft picks, not really make any progress, and then we're gonna have to do this hard reset three years from now when every other team is doing it. So yeah, no, I think there's what you're saying there is, is pretty sensible. I will also say talking about teams in the NFC West, little Niners talk for the Niners nation out there. We all need to prepare ourselves for the, the real discussion that is going to be about how the Niners are going to screw Debo Samuel over with his contract, which is already, I don't know if you've heard any of this talk, but unless the Niners feel like really rewarding Debo Samuel, they're basically in a position where he either takes a below average long-term deal or they'll just let him play out his final season and then franchise tag him for the two seasons they can franchise tag him. And that will be better off than signing him to a long-term. He'll then be 29 years old coming to the end of his second franchise tag. At which point do you want to sign a, sign a wide receiver slash running back who takes multiple big hits a game and probably can't play that same role to another deal? It's one of the it's one of the crappy parts of the NFL, I guess, because if you're the Niners and you want to manage your cap properly, it's kind of what you have to do. At the same time, they obviously know how valuable he is to the team, what a popular figure he is, also within both the team and the fan base. But you don't want to just pay someone for the sake of it. Uh, speaking of which, if you want to get all our controversial and hot takes, make sure to follow the Big Chill Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Especially next, if you're into our horse racing tips, I guess our usual Cheltenham videos probably won't, like last year, won't make the podcast, but our short clip videos will then go on our YouTube channel. So if you want our daily Cheltenham picks, which last last year, when it came to horse racing, Cheltenham, Grand National, and Royal Ascot, we, we did well. So we were definitely profitable. So if you do want to make sure you don't miss out on those, follow us on our other, on some various social media platforms. And then... Uh- oh. Oh, are we going to do the other trade news? Are we going to finish up the NFL? You you go for it. I'll let you take the lead. Okay, so Khalil Mack was traded from the Bears to the Chargers. And for, I think that was only a a 
just saw it quickly, a sixth round pick? Did I well, read that right? Supposedly they're finalizing the trade, right? I think it's not technically official. Okay. But yeah, that's what they're... They, I mean, those appear to be formalities once they say they're finalizing a deal. Usually that means it's going through, but but it's not official official yet. But yeah, I never know. I don't know what the value of a 31-year-old linebacker is. I mean, that's the thing, right? So Khalil Mack, this year that just finished did not have that great of a season. I think he was seven sacks the year before that he actually had a really good season for the bears and pretty much led their defense. I think it's a great pickup for the chargers because it kind of reminds me of the Von Miller with the Rams where Von Miller is getting older, but the Rams have a great line. So when you put another special like pass rush specialist on a team that has a good line you're gonna get mismatches and he's gonna either he's gonna be able to shine or your other players are gonna be able to shine and to me putting bosa and khalil mack on the same line is a pretty scary thing being a quarterback i think that's gonna work out really well for them yeah 100 percent. i agree with you i think that's a good parallel i think you even saw that a little bit in arizona didn't work out quite as well as it did with the Rams, but that same concept of like, okay, we throw JJ Watt in and you kind of, maybe they're coming towards the end of their career and they're not the force that they once were, but we allow them to just be this excellent addition to our defense and allow them to focus on what they do best. And if Khalil Mack can come in and make three good plays a game, you know, seriously above average plays a game, then that's a win for them based on what they're giving up for him. So yeah. I, I, I mean, you can change, you can change a game with those exactly, three plays. Yeah. As a defensive yeah. end. So, no, I, 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 I totally get it. Other breaking news. Oh, and I mean, I think go ahead. I was, I was going to just finish that up. I, I mean, I think that makes them a pretty – I know it's one small addition, but when you think about what was so terrible about the Chargers, it was a little inconsistency on the offense, but then that you could never trust that defense at any point in the game. And it would always be – Herbert coming back from down 15, down 21, whatever crazy number it was. If you can make a more solid defense and ha- and bring in Mac, not only to be a better defense, but maybe to get, let's say, five more turnovers a, a, a season, you know, between a forced fumble or pressuring the QB into throwing an interception, that can change a lot of games. And think about how close the Chargers were. I mean, that's their MO, right? They're so close to winning games. If you can get someone like that who can – have a turnover every three or four games that changes it, they could, those losses could then turn into wins and they could be a playoff team. Yeah. I'm always still skeptical of teams that are built on having to, you know, go and get in these slug fests with other teams. And they still kind of are that approach. And they, they couldn't stop the run last season. I don't know if Khalil Mack necessarily solves that problem by himself. And also they're just in a really tough division, which got tougher through the Russell Wilson trade. So, I mean, that's the, that's the big issue for them is it's going to be easy for them to lose games without playing that badly because they're going to have a lot of tough games. I mean, the real losers out of this offseason so far, right, are the Raiders. I mean, the Raiders were, you know, not far away from beating the eventual Super Bowl representative from the NFC, and yet they are now in a position where their division, like their path to even making the playoffs is incredibly tough. So they're the real losers so far, even though they've done basically nothing. 
But some big news, some big breaking news that I'm sure will get you really, really excited. Frank, I don't know if you saw, but it looks like the NFL's NFL, the NFL, the MLB is close to coming back. It looks like the players union has reached a kind of agreement, at least in principle. So they just have to dot the I's and cross the T's on the final few details. So we could have baseball back sometime soon, which basically fits in with the timeline that I think everyone expected, which is that the owners have no interest in paying players for early season baseball where no one cares about it. So if they can just have a, a lockout like a, where they come back in April, May time, then they've just saved themselves a bunch of money and not missed out on anything really. But looks like baseball could be back. Yeah. I mean, this could make baseball more enjoyable. I think it's what everyone in, in America wants half the season. <laughs> So games mean more and you don't have to watch 162 games to be a fan. Yeah, it's so hard. I don't know how you fix it because I can understand the diehard. Like there's two things. One, if you're a diehard baseball fan, you definitely don't want to fix it. And for a sport that relies so much on its history, if you massively alter the format of the season, you obviously throw away all the records. So I can understand from that's a difficult approach. And also one of the nice things about baseball is the idea that you can just easily go to the occasional regular season game and it's cheap and you can go to a day game and it's, you're going to be able to easily get a ticket. And if suddenly you made it 50 games a season, that wouldn't be possible probably. So, I mean, what if you cut it to a hundred, <laughs> I think at a hundred, it's still pretty easy. Like think about that. You're, you're cutting so much. From 162 to 100, and you still have 100 games you're playing. Yeah. I mean, yes, it would be more interesting. The same way the NBA would be more interesting if they cut like 16 games off their regular season too. Like they also play too many games. And I bet you I don't really care too much about the NHL. I might be a little bit more interested in the NHL in the regular season if they cut a bunch of games off their regular season as well. But I also understand that means you've got to play the, pay the players less so the players don't want it even if they complain about back-to-backs and playing, you know, games in close proximity to each other. And also from the owner's perspective, you make less money. So I can understand why kind of no one involved really wants to do it. And then when you throw in the fact that it makes it difficult to say, I mean, then you, you like prorate someone's records. Some guy goes on a tear and hits six, you know, 60 home runs. And all of a sudden you go, well, actually he's the greatest single season home run hitter of all time. Because right, he didn't break the record, but if he kept up that pace, he would have. And the thing is, right? I can, I think, I think we can all remember if if you have any passing interest in baseball, plenty of seasons where midway through they'll be talking about some guy like, well, if he keeps up this pace, he will break this record, and then they end up falling like forty yeah. percent short, <laughs> like it's not even close. Yeah, you know what? But like, you're completely right. I think the main reason they won't go let's just say to 100 games is because people are so anal about the history of baseball and the records and all of this and to be to be fair who gives a shit if you're gonna lose the sport because no one's going and no one's watching like wouldn't you rather have the sport still exist and be a sport that's talked about and watched and sold out for than to just oh we, well, we, we can't that would that would crush the record books. That's not fair. We don't want to do that. I guess like I guess on. the hard thing is, right? The people who don't want it to be changed are the people who are currently watching baseball. 
And so the argument is, hey, we know you love this thing, but we do want more people to love it. So we're going to change the thing you love. And that might annoy you and that might make you love it less. And then to throw into the equation, they can say back, but are you sure more people will love it if you kind of ruin the thing I love? And they'll say, we're not sure, but, but maybe. So you might, you might have a situation <laughs> is like, well, we're playing 100 games a season now. And the people who love the 162 say, well, this really sucks. And the people who didn't love baseball in the first place go, I still don't care about baseball. Still 50 yeah. too many. <laughs> <laughs> still 99 more than I'm going to watch next season. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very true. And I would actually, I mean, maybe what you need to do is you need to quadruple the amount they pay for the MLB game pass. And then let's see if they decide they're willing to go down in games. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's what's going to happen soon. Because either that or you stop paying the players $150 million in their well, contracts. I think that's the real fix. I don't understand how baseball players earn so much more. And I know they don't on a median. <laughs> but I don't know how you have these players signing these ridiculous deals in a sport that where the economics of it seem in no way sustainable, even though as we've discussed in the past, the economics of sports rarely seem sustainable, but in baseball, it seems even worse. And then when you throw in, you just have these unrecognizable superstars earning ungodly sums of money. Oftentimes. I mean, yeah, Trevor Bauer is making 40 million a year. He's the highest paid right now. Mike Trout at 37, Garrett Cole at 36, DeGrom at 36. And, and look. <laughs> a year. <laughs> and, and the reason why it also doesn't make sense economically Okay, Mike Trout, amazing player. But the Angels aren't good. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like, it's not one of those sports where if you really sign this superstar, it pushes you over the edge. Maybe a dominant pitcher, you could argue. But having a really great outfielder, like, okay, he's going to make some spectacular plays in the outfield every once in a while. And yeah, he's going to hit above, well above league average and hit a good number of home runs. But fundamentally... It's not like you're going to win the World Series because you have Mike Trout. You need a, you need Mike Trout plus twenty other guys, and I think that's the other thing that's an issue. It's not like in the NFL. It's like, well, if you get the superstar, <laughs> good thing Sam's not still here. <laughs> yeah, it's not like the NFL where you can sign a superstar quarterback and that kind of makes you instantly relevant. Or in the NBA where, yeah, you put LeBron James on your team. This season's Lakers aside, you're instantly relevant. Speaking about financial rumblings and headaches, I guess we can switch to the big news coming out of European football, which is the restrictions that are being yeah. placed on Chelsea this week as a result of the fact that they're owned by Roman Abramovich and the UK's continued crackdown on Russian billionaires and oligarchs, although quite possibly extending to just Russians in general at this point. But these new restrictions are going to make it very, very difficult for Chelsea over the coming months. For those unfamiliar, basically these new restrictions mean kind of limiting Chelsea's ability to make money and make business decisions whilst uh, these restrictions are in place. So they cannot sell any tickets for upcoming matches. They will honor season ticket holders and anyone who's purchased a ticket before March 12th, uh, March 10th, sorry, those tickets will still be honored, but they will not sell any additional tickets. They cannot negotiate new contracts or sign any or sign or sell any players. So fundamentally a transfer embargo plus a kind of contract renegotiation embargo. 
This applies to all staff, not even just players. This is everyone who works at Chelsea Football Club, including the men's and women's teams. So let me stop you there real quick. Let's give an unlikely scenario that seven of the players on Chelsea decide they don't want to be on Chelsea anymore. Can they literally just resign and then go play and then go get signed or picked up by another no, team? No, the contracts are a little bit more complicated than that. But what it does mean is there are players who are coming who are whose contracts are coming to an end at the end of this season. And I think it includes a, a number of high profile players. Rudiger, Aspilaquelta, uh, a few of them are all out of contract this summer. They are now not in a position to renegotiate those deals. So if if that remains the same through so at the moment i think they've put this restriction in place and chelsea are actually getting an exemption than most other russian owned businesses are getting if it weren't for the fact that they were a sports team they'd basically have to halt all trade but because they're a sports team they're allowing them to still play matches and pay their staff and but basically if this stays in place beyond the end of the season those players will just leave on a free and be when their contracts end, will be free to sign for whoever, whoever else they want on a free transfer. So, you know, that, that will be complicated if this plays in, stays in place over the summer. For the time being, at the moment, it doesn't change too much for them, aside from the fact that it does throw into question, there's two elements that throw into question their future participation in European tournaments. One of them is UEFA is having to think about how it is going to interpret these types of sanctions and decide whether or not their ban of Russian-based teams will extend to Russian-owned teams. So there's that element to see what UEFA does. The other issue is uh, they've capped. Chelsea can now only spend £20,000 for away travel to games, which is insufficient. That's what I wanted to bring up. Insufficient based on the traditional ways of traveling to matches. So they're going to play away in Lille next week. Admittedly, there are ways for them to do that for less than twenty thousand pounds. But uh, to, to be honest, yes. But even that will be slightly difficult. All right, let's 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 not make it Lille because you you have some easier yeah. ways to get there. Let's move it over to countries. Let's say you right. Ha- let's move it a little let's say more. You east. have to fly. Go to Germany. You have to fly. Let's say you go yeah. into Germany. Okay. I don't know. I, that, I mean, because you have to fly. All the players and a good amount of staff. I mean, you have all your coaches, all your trainers, everything like that. That's going to be – you're looking at 40 let's, tickets let's call it, just to fly. That's just to let's fly. Call it, let's call it 30. I think if you really went to like a, okay, a let's skeleton – because you only need the players. Well, no, but fundamentally like, <laughs> yes. I know, I know, I know. would have been players traveling who they know aren't going to play. And, and with this approach, they'll have to say, sorry, we know you're not going to play, so you're not there. We're taking the, say, 18 to 20 players we think are going to be involved, potentially involved in a match day squad or who we need as cover in case a last-minute injury comes into place. So say 20 players and then 10 staff between, obviously, the the coaches, whatever physios they need, all of that. Yeah, Lille seems possible because you can just stick everyone on a bus and it will be a, thro- a throwback yep. to... A very old-fashioned form of trans, like transport for professional football teams who are used to flying almost. I mean, what people need to remember: Premier League football clubs fly almost everywhere. Like they will take twenty-minute flights on private jets to go to matches. Like the concept, 
teams in the lower level will bus a lot, but a lot of Premier League teams will will get on planes where it's literally as soon as you've reached, you know, you've taken off and as soon as you've kind of reached cruising altitude, you've begun your descent. Like they will regularly do that. So it will be a, it will definitely be a dramatic shift for Chelsea over the rest of the season. Uh, it, they'll have to pretty much have to bus everywhere. I mean, there's also also the option of train travel, but it does become tight. Yeah. And if you start to say, but then like you're also looking at hotels yeah. as well, right? I mean, it's Not- crazy. And, and what also cracks me up is like just picturing them all on a bus. So it's about a, what a four hour, let's say four to five hours to Lille from where they're oh, at. Oh no, by bus. By bus? That's, yeah, yeah. Let's say five, six hours by bus. So when I think of bus trips like that, I think of that's about two movies that's going to play on that little TV that pops up in front of now, you. And like, who's going to choose the movies? You do need to factor in. <laughs> they do all already have buses, and their buses are extremely nice. You know, so. no, I know, I know, but you know, I'm just, I'm just like picturing it when you're saying it. Like they never take the buses, and here they are in this shitty little bus that's got four TVs on each side. I mean, what I'd be most <laughs> interested to see, they might have to get really creative. They might have to like carpool to matches. You know, it might be a situation of okay, guys, we need we need eight players to volunteer to drive their own cars. Like this is this is the situation we've got to because we can't afford, we cannot get to Madrid for this match unless everyone just drives themselves there. So I don't know. I, I feel like they can also just get creative in that. I don't know how you, you know, if someone does them a favor and gets them cut price plane tickets or, you know, like how are they going to assess how much they spent? And I know they're appealing that aspect of it. But the other element that throws their future European participation then into doubt is obviously, in addition to this, this would mean that Chelsea cannot sell tickets. Let's say they go through to the next round of the of the Champions League, which it looks like they will do because they won the first leg comfortably. That means that Chelsea can then sell tickets for the next round of the Champions League. So what do UEFA do? Do they then sell these tickets to non-Chelsea fans, which obviously doesn't care? And just yeah. make the money. Or, They'll probably or love they, that. Or do they accept <laughs> that the Champions League tie is going to be played in a 50% full stadium? And obviously this will impact their revenue and the revenue of the other team playing Chelsea. So I don't know. There is a possibility here that Chelsea could be removed from European competition. I'm sure if they're UEFA are probably crossing their fingers and hoping that Lille knock them out next week and that they just simplifies the entire arrangement. In the same way that I'm sure even the FA is hoping, you know, Chelsea are still in the FA Cup. I'm sure they don't look forward to the prospect of Chelsea playing an FA Cup semi-final or an FA Cup final where Chelsea can't sell tickets. You know, I, I think, and you're just going to have a, what, an empty Chelsea away end or, you know, whatever it is, like half, like 30% of Wembley is just going to be empty. Because if you open them up for open sale, Chelsea fans are just going to buy it, which okay means Chelsea don't make money, but you're still not really punishing them in quite the same way well for Wembley that wouldn't matter but for for uh Sanford Bridge it would because they've also put a limit on how much they can spend on their home games so they can only spend 500,000 pounds which sounds like a lot but I think when you add in all of the security and paying all the people that work there and then the catering and all the different levels of that I'm sure that adds up pretty quickly so they're also limited in, in what they can do at the stadium. So they probably wouldn't even be able to hold a full capacity stadium considering all the 
staff and, and security you'd have to have there and they can't pay for it because they're yeah. capped. And then there's the other element too to consider, which is uh, the fact that potentially because they're not able to obviously make any money over this period, nor is Roman Abramovich able to pump any money into the club, which is something he'd been doing routinely ever since he took ownership. They could be unable to pay the money that they owe. And so I think based on the latest financial reports that were made public, it said that basically Chelsea have between 12 to 19 million pounds in their bank account at any one time on average and that their monthly expenditures are somewhere around 23 to 24 million pounds. So that's not a great position to be in, obviously. But if they... So then you just call them Barcelona. Yeah, but if they do reach a, if they do reach <laughs> a stage where they are then unable to pay their debts, they could be forced into administration. If they're forced into administration, then that means they would get a nine-point deduction as a punishment for going into administration, which would then push them potentially out of the Champions League places, which is a kind of further financial punishment for them. So this this could really be have a snowballing effect on you know Chelsea's long-term future because you could talk about missing out on players, missing out on future income. income. It could be massive. But do you think at that point that someone will step in and say this is kind of an extenuating circumstance here and maybe we don't deduct them the points because this is just a very weird situation i i I mean it it feels a little harsh punishing the club because they're owned by someone whose country is now at war yeah no i mean well i think the difference with abramovich right is that it's his ties to putin are very close and so it's not just a case of hey this is a random russian person who happens to own this is one of the few people who's managed to stay close to putin for 30 years and one of the few people who managed to establish themselves as kind of an oligarch in the 90s and maintain their wealth and positioning in Russia throughout that period. So it's not just a random Russian. We've known all along that he's kind of a Putin crony, even though he claims that they now he's now distanced himself. I don't. The reason why I think those rules will be enforced is there are a lot of clubs throughout the pyramid of English football who have had rules strictly enforced when they would say, hey, there's some mitigating circumstances here, or this is just our owner has been an idiot. Like this isn't the fault of the fans. We didn't know that our owner was grossly overspending or that he didn't have the money to put into the club or or whatever it is. And they've all been punished by the letter of the law. And so you're gonna have a lot of people saying, and already there's always accusations of, well, the big clubs don't have the same standards applied to them that get applied to the smaller clubs. So when you do have these, small clubs going, being forced out of business practically, no one really cares because their fan base is small because they don't have the polling power in the media or, or, you know, wherever else it is in just terms of name recognition. If they let Chelsea off the hook, especially considering what the overall public opinion is when it comes to Russia. I mean, I know when you kind of do a scan of Twitter and stuff, there's a lot of people out there who feel like Chelsea fans deserve this. They knew what they were getting with Abramovich. Like, no, they didn't know that Russia was going to invade Ukraine, but they knew he wasn't a good guy and they knew he didn't get his money from good ways. And so, hey, you had a fun run. You won a few Premier Leagues. You won the Champions League. You went from being kind of irrelevant to massively relevant. And now is your comeuppance. Yeah, I, it's it's tough. I, I mean, because even when you're saying 
you know, some of the restrictions and the sanctions that were put on other clubs were due to some action of either the owner or someone in the organization doing something wrong within that organization. So yes, your owner was an idiot and massively overspent or underspent or wasn't paying things. Not always. It could be that the owner got into financial trouble outside of the football club and then couldn't support the football club in the way that they got used to. And so that that messed up their finances or that the owner, you know, you've had owners who have fallen into massive legal troubles for things that they've done outside of the football club, where again, it's been, they've been put in a position where they've been forced to sell. So there aren't direct parallels because this is, these are unique, a unique set of circumstances, but definitely it's not totally dissimilar to some of the situations football clubs have found themselves in where basically their owner has sort of mortgaged the future of the club because they're doing other things. Yeah. It just, to me, I, I don't know where I fall on it, but it does seem a little harsh that it almost has nothing to do with the owner and anything with the organization that he owns. It's a completely different thing that he's involved in. I, so I guess this is really naive of me, but would there, like, I feel a better option would be to almost just strip him of the club and put the club up for like public sale. So that was what he was trying to do, right? He claimed the club was for sale and that any profits were going to be donated to uh, sort of those affected by the war. Already this was such a vague description because what did he mean by profits? How we're going to work out what his profit was from, because he definitely lost tremendous sums of money on owning Chelsea just because of the amount of money he spent. And he'd also, I think, intentionally somewhat indebted the club to himself so that he couldn't be forced Basically, they will bankrupt the club if they just force him to sell without his agreement, if you see what I mean. And so he he kind of could yeah, see okay. that this day could come at some point. You can see that from when you read the reports about how he's the financial position he's put Chelsea in. He's kind of protected himself against the idea of getting like the David, the Donald Sterling situation in the NBA where it's like, hey, you've, you've done something really offensive and we're just going to make you sell this. So... I mean, the quick fix would be to just sell the club. I guess the, the, tr- the tough thing for people is fundamentally, hey, look, we again, it's this idea. We didn't just realize that Abramovich might be a bad guy with, a, with close ties to very bad people and that Chelsea Football Club has benefited tremendously from huge sums of money, probably made in not great ways. So whilst it's not the fault of their fans, it's not as if they were out protesting for the last 20 years or nearly 20 years about Abramovich's ownership. They've enjoyed the ride. So look, if I were a Chelsea supporter, I'd probably feel massively different, differently about this whole situation. That's what I was going to ask you. What, what's the pulse on the Chelsea supporters right now? It's hard to tell. I have to admit, I haven't done, I did speak to a friend of the podcast, Ollie, very briefly today about it. Ollie, not Ali. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ollie. You said that very weird. <laughs> yeah, he's converted to Islam since you last spoke to him. But uh, I did speak to him. He he seemed somewhat subdued when it came to this news, I have to say. I don't think – he didn't express too strong of an opinion as to whether or not he was felt it. I think he still was – I think like a lot of people is thrown into a position where they're not sure how they feel about it, where they can see where it's coming from, but they don't necessarily think – don't know if it's the right action. Well, Diev. 
anything else from the world of sports or pop culture or food culture? Not really. I've been pretty bogged down by work recently, so I haven't been out much. So I have very few stories when not, and at the same time of my food adventures have been limited to my house, really. So I don't have much on that end. Pop culture wise, I watched the second episode of Peaky Blinders, but you, I'm ahead of you, so we can't really discuss it. Uh, yeah, I will say I went this this to me was a little strange. Went to a bar uh, this week and we played pool. And it's crazy to think how long it's been since I've played pool because I haven't been to a bar really in so long and let alone a bar that has a pool table. I mean, it honestly was probably th- three, four years since I played a game of pool and I was quite rusty and did not play my best <laughs> my best game. But it's, it's fun, I guess, to finally be doing things that used to be a somewhat irregular occurrence where, you know, maybe every th- third or fourth time you go out, there's a there's a pool table at the bar and you play a few rounds whereas you know it's like holy crap i forgot what this even is yeah i mean we're obviously <laughs> we're marking pretty much the two-year anniversary right of all this stuff really getting going and here in paris i think the 16th is when pretty much all of the restrictions will lift i mean there are very few restrictions at the moment but you'll no longer have to you know the controversial vaccine pass that you have to show like the app that shows you've been vaccinated that will be reduced to a pass that just shows that you don't have COVID. So again, negative tests can prove it. Uh, so that's already one reduction that doesn't affect me in any way, but also our mask wearing will be re- greatly reduced. So at the moment you have to wear a mask in any enclosed public space. And basically that will be totally removed aside from public transport. You still will. And if you go to a hospital or something, you still have to, but everywhere else you're, Probably with good yeah, reason, anyway. I mean, <laughs> Even besides no, I mean, COVID. <laughs> People should have been doing that for decades. I mean, that's the interesting <laughs> thing, right? I have been, not that I was ever very sick. You know, I, I rarely got colds or the flu or anything previously. But when I do think about the fact, like it's annoying to wear a mask on public transport, but then there's part of me that thinks it's just the smarter move anyway, just to reduce the chances of someone just having a cold who sits down next to me and gives me a cold. It will be interesting to see how much people, how far we go in our return to the, like, for example, I think even, I think if I fly now, I think I'll pretty much wear a mask all the, like, I will take it off to eat and drink. Like, I won't feel bad about removing my mask to do that. But if the idea is just me sitting there kind of watching a movie or about to fall asleep, I think I'll probably just stick a mask on. Oh, no way. I can't do it. For me, it's more because I wear glasses. And wearing glasses well, then with a mask is just you have so to wear you have to wear that like dorky strap that goes behind that like keeps it down. <laughs> I know. No, or you have to have like the nose pinch thing, and then it's just so uncomfortable. No, I, I mean, yeah, I don't, I'm not complicated in that respect, but it will be interesting. And and look, I say this now, I might get onto my first eight hour flight and chuck the mask out the window, but I don't. I hope you don't chuck the mask out the window. <laughs> if you've got much bigger issues, Eddie, if you're chucking a mask out an airplane window. <laughs> Do have some sporting events planned for the not-too-distant future. Going to go to a couple of rugby matches, I think. So got that to look forward to. Nice. Actually, I was going to go to a hockey game the other day, but uh, we ended up not going. But I might go 
in a few weeks. The Coyotes are making a late late season oh. surge. This is going to be a return to the stadium where I claimed I could kick, I could hit the roof. So, oh, are they, they inviting heard. you back because they, they want the they want to see it? Yeah, they heard. I mean, look, I can definitely hit the roof. Like, I don't understand why anyone. Someone looked it up. I think did I mention this on the podcast? How one of the guys in attendance found it. They found an article no. where the architect who designed the building basically came out and said, "Look, we intentionally designed it so that people couldn't hit the roof." My argument was they did that, taking into account how people kick during an actual rugby match, not as in, "Hey, if Johnny Wilkinson wanted to nail this roof, do you think he could do it?" It's it's like there would be tactically no reason to do it. It's like the argument with Cowboy Stadium. Like, yes, punters can hit that screen if they just want to hit the screen. But if you actually want a good punt, you're not probably going to do it. I still don't think you can do it, Eddie. You can give me all the reasons and all the architectural drawings. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to go twice. <laughs> I will take, I'll take a ball and do it. I'll get kicked out, I'm sure. But I'll do it. I mean, there's no way for me to, there's no way for me okay. to do it without <laughs> nailing someone in the head with a ball. This is the real issue. It's also, I have to say, it's a lot of pressure in some respects because you've only got one attempt. Like there is no warm up there. Like you can't even warm up with a, a softer kick. It is literally jeans and just a couple swings of your leg to make sure nothing's going to pop and then kicking it to the roof and hoping you make good contact. I mean, what about, could you maybe get like a stadium tour? And then when you get the stadium tour, tell the guy, the tour guy, be like, listen, can you just let me kick a few balls on the field? I want to see if I can do something. I think you got a better shot there. Do they well, no, give I mean, the reason the I have stadium? a chance, right, is because at the end of the game, they let you onto the field. So, yeah. Yeah, but I think that's riskier because you could you could almost get into trouble if you really hurt, hurt someone. Yeah. I mean, if you hit someone which, in the head and injure them. Whereas if you do like a which, stadium tour, it'll be empty, one is what of I'm two saying. Ways. Either I shank it and it just hits someone, or I do even hit the roof and it falls down on someone. Like there's, you know, like I'm not going to be able to make the 2,000 people standing on the field aware of the fact that I'm about to take on this challenge while a DJ plays and no one can hear me. Just get a microphone. Oh, get on the stage <laughs> and grab the microphone. The other, the only other alternative, I guess, is you really try and hang around till the very end. And then you maybe tell the security people like, look, I've got this challenge. Can I just hang around when there's no one? Kind of. Kind yeah. of like our ascot There's no race. one really around. Do you mind? I'm just going to try and kick it. I still think they'll say no because they'll be worried I'll just break something because they know the power in this leg. I might take. I might bring down a. You know, yeah. You know. I'm sure. A light, a light might get knocked off the roof or something. That also actually like just think about at Ascot where we did that, where all these police officers are trying to make sure people aren't getting like hit by cars and aren't so drunk that they're doing something stupid. And here we go, like, hey, excuse me, officer, we just want to run like thirty meters in this really empty parking lot. Will that be an issue? And they're just like, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah, of course, we don't care. <laughs> like they were so like uninterested. <laughs> It's so funny. You know, so good to ask, though. Good, you know, just setting a good example for the kids out there. If you are going to do something that probably isn't expected, ask any, ask a, an adult or a supervisor for permission just to make sure. Reduces your risk of getting in trouble. All right. Well, with that, I guess I'll talk to you later.